Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Light the fuse. Well, this is not mission difficult, Mr. Hunt. It's mission impossible. Difficult should be a walk in the park for you. Uh, it's all got to do with the rabbit's foot. Please don't make me go through you. Sir, Hunt is the living manifestation of destiny, and he has made you his mission. Kittredge, you've never seen me very upset. And you really think we can do this? We're going to do it. Welcome to Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. Once again, I am Drew Taylor, joined by Charles Hood. Charles, how you doing? How you feeling today? I feel fantastic. Once again, it is me and it is you, and we are talking about Mission Impossible as we do. As we do. Story of our lives. And um, <laughs> today we're getting a peek into the multiverse, Charles. We're seeing what could have been. You know what I mean? Yes, it's true. I know we, we've done it before. You know, we did a previous episode on our old show that was all about uh, a rewrite of David Marconi's script uh, for Oliver Stone's Mission Impossible 2. And that rewrite, that rewrite was by Michael Tolkien. But uh, today we've got David Marconi on to talk about his draft, which was actually the draft before that one. Uh, so it's very different than what we what we covered last time. So it's very exciting. Um, I, yeah, I just, you know, we're always fascinated by these alternate universe versions of, uh, the Mission Impossible movies. Uh, but before we get into this interview, uh, so it is David Marconi. He's the screenwriter of, of, uh, he worked with Oliver Stone on Mission Impossible 2. But before we get into that, I, I just wanted to talk about a little something that was pretty cool. Um, the Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 soundtrack album had an additional release an extended edition came out and it's now on all the streaming services right it's on apple and spotify and it's it's a the original album which was already huge had 39 tracks this has an additional 15 and most notably the thing we got super excited about is you'll see if you look at these tracks like our own composer kevin blumenfeld who worked on the movie under lorne he, he is credited with lorne on two of the tracks ethan's fate and shadows of sorrow are credited to lorne balf and kevin blumenfeld and then there's a third track called truth is vanishing where kevin is credited with lorne and joshua pacey Pretty awesome. What, I mean, what did you think of these uh, tracks, Drew? And this extended edition in, in general? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of a surprise. It popped up a couple of weeks ago. Um, I think there's actually a separate, different album also on CD that we're going to talk about. But yeah, it's it's great. I mean, having more Lorne Mission Impossible music is never a bad thing. And having Kevin in the mix, even better. So 
yeah, I'm I'm excited that it's out there. You can also hear, I think, some demos almost at the end of the album. Um, so yes. it's really it's a really interesting compilation of of things. Um, yeah, you kind of see how they how they name how they name tracks, how they name the cues in the movies. You know, the, the name of the last three tracks is XM Nine Barren Wilderness, XM Eighteen Dunes, and XM Twenty Two Hunt. And that's them uh, the way they're they're naming the tracks based on when they come up in the movie and stuff. Uh, I think there usually is a number instead of the X. I think it corresponds to the reel that it shows up in the movie. I'm not exactly sure, but I think it's something like that. Anyway. It's very cool. Yes. Yeah, so like you said, it's interesting to see the kind of like half, you know, these are these, I think a lot of these are not exactly featured in the movie or they're themes that are featured in the movie, but they're not used exactly the way they're cut in these tracks. Um, it's very cool. And I also wanted to point in the direction of La La Land Records making a CD of the suites and themes from the motion picture. So that is essentially all these bonus tracks are packaged together in this awesome CD with this great black and white cover art. And it's got inside of it a note from the composer. So you see a little uh, page written up from uh, Lauren Balfe about the score. And you see pictures from the recordings uh, that were done in different parts of the world. You know, you see the the Italy and Budapest. And so it's very cool. Uh, yeah, I just uh, wanted to say that album is available to buy also from la la land records they actually gave us a little preview copy to check out it's very cool it's awesome it sounds amazing of course and i would just say to stay tuned to our socials stay tuned to our twitter and instagram um i guess tiktok too maybe i don't know but because we might be doing something special related to this over there so i would just say to stay tuned what do you think about that drew oh that is exciting that's better than kevin being on every track of the album (laughs) So <laughs> sorry, yeah. Kevin. Sorry, but it's the truth. Yeah, you know we love we love uh, that possibility. So yeah, be sure to follow us if you're not already on all of our social handles at Light the Fuse Pod. Great. So should we get into this interview with Marconi? Let's do it. Let's do it. Ready for ready to take a trip to the alternate universe, Charles? Absolutely. Let's get into it, and we'll be back afterwards. We are so thrilled to be joined today by David Marconi, who wrote the draft of Mission Impossible 2 that we poorly described on an earlier episode and <laughs> is now going to give us the the straight scoop. So, David, how did you initially get involved with the second Mission Impossible? Well, that's that's the Genesis story that you guys don't have. I was doing, I was writing, uh, I had directed a movie called... Uh, the Harvest, uh, back in the day, it was filmed by uh, Emmanuel Lubezki, who went, later went on to win three Academy Awards for Best Cinematography. And um, it was my first picture. And off of that movie, I got a overall deal at Simpson Bruckheimer. And they wanted to do a movie about a guy who gets taken apart electronically. And they asked me if I'd do it. And originally, it was a writing directing deal. And I said, sure, let's go. And I ended up writing multiple drafts over a two or three year period. And um, at the end of the day, the, what I wrote was about a hundred million dollar action movie. So I, I realized I wasn't going to be allowed to direct the movie, but I did have an in and I did know, you know, Oliver Stone. So I gave Oliver the script for Enemy of the State. 
And he read it that weekend and he said, my God, I want to do this movie. And so he said, let's get Bruckheimer and the head of Disney on the phone directly and let's let's do this. And so suddenly the movie had like a green light on it and it was kind of golden. And with this other executive, you know, and his little development, you know, notes were no longer important because when Oliver Stone calls up about a conspiracy movie and calls the head of Disney directly and says, this is a movie. What are you guys doing with it? It was it became a movie. And so that executive then, you know, the first thing he did was, you know, brought in people to rewrite it so he could kind of control the project and kind of get me off of it, which is what they do sometimes. But um, it was uh, because of my relationship with Oliver uh, and he really wanted to do Enemy of the State. When Oliver got approached to do MI2, they asked him who he wanted to write it. And he said, Marconi. So because of that relationship off of Enemy of the State, they offered me the movie uh, to write the first draft of MI2. So we then, you know, Oliver, you know, he's very trained in classics, Alexander the Great and all that stuff. He really, he's not a big techie guy, but he, the classics are his thing and, and, and storytelling and characters. And that's really his forte. So we started, you know, going through the list as to try to find something, what this, new mission impossible could be about. And, you know, I had come across a book a while ago called Lingo. And one of my favorite movies was the Forbin project. And so I started throwing this idea to him about, you know, AI and eventually he sparked to it and we got everybody on board and we started to develop it from there. And, um, I, I never had any exposure to, to Ron Moore. So the draft that you guys talked about, in your in your podcast earlier was not my draft that was probably the draft by by michael tolkien yeah it was that's right it was yeah. the michael tolkien draft yeah so it was a, yeah. it was a, a rewrite of yours yeah it, it was a rewrite of mine uh and mine was was a little different and mine opens up you know you know our, our, oliver really wanted to do kind of you know odysseus you know uh, he wanted to do an origin movie for tom cruise Tom Cruise's, you know, search for his long lost father and his misbegotten son. And, you know, then you wrap around, you know, a Mission Impossible mission. But it was really in my draft, it was really a movie about Tom Cruise and not so much a movie about, you know, the team. And that's where Oliver, that's where Oliver and, and Tom ultimately had their separation was because I, I think they were just going in two different directions as to what they wanted the movie to be about. Um, and we had a lot of fun with it. I mean, we, you know, I mean, in, in the opening I had, you know, Tom gets hired to, to go into China and to, to spring this, you know, dissident, you know, out of, you know, Northern Chinese prison. And he gets this dissident out only to have the dissident disappear and realize that the whole mission was basically, a, he, he got zoomed and that, you know, the IMF people didn't send him on that mission. And it was ultimately, you know, the AI that sent him on the mission to bring back, you know, its creator because it, you know, had, you know, things that it wanted to do. And it was really kind of uh, an interesting approach and Oliver really liked it. And then, and we, you know, flew all around the world. We flew to all the, you know, 
labs. We went to Los Alamos. We went to Sandia. We went and we spoke to a lot of people involved in, you know, technologies because in the end, you know, Oliver wanted, you know, and this was a, a problem I had as a writer, you know, Oliver wanted Tom to be up in outer space, you know, with a bunch of other people, you know, flying around doing, you know, crazy things, trying to get to this entity. And the technology, obviously, unless you start to embrace, you know, the, the idea of the secret space programs and all that other stuff, wasn't there. And, you know, we had gone to Los Alamos and we're talking to all these different, you know, scientists and and they're saying, well, you know, Oliver, what, what you're describing, you know, won't be probably maybe your grandchildren's grandchildren will be able to do the stuff you're talking about. But it certainly, you know, isn't a contemporary mission impossible. So as as a writer, I was trying to, you know, make this crazy kind of, you know, idea that takes place in space work, you know, in a contemporary frame of, of Mission Impossible. And it, it, it became very difficult. I mean, I did it. I did. I completed a draft. And then right around that time, um, The Saint came out, you know, which was also a movie by Paramount. And Oliver took a look at The Saint, and it was also a sequel. And he just started to, you know, he, he wasn't happy. He thought, well, this is these are the kind of movies that, you know, Paramount's doing. And, you know, it, you know they're, they're not really character-driven dramas. And they just want to do these, you know, bad kind of um, sequels based on these, you know, cartoon characters. And so he, he started to just kind of get cold on the, the, the project in general. And they brought Michael Tolkien in at that point to, to try and reintroduce, you know, the team because Tom really wanted the team. He wanted, you know, he wanted Dun 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 and he wanted Luke Authority, he wanted all these, you know, characters in the film, you know, the team that, that wasn't there in the, the draft that we originally did. We'll be back with more from David Marconi after the break. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Well, what was the vibe between Cruz and Stone? What was their working relationship like before this kind of break happened? Well, they they had a very good working relationship because Stone did, you know, born on the Fourth of July with Tom, right? You know, so they were they they were they were very close, which is why, you know, Tom called you know Oliver, and Oliver was going to bring in all of you know all of these beautiful you know character driven things, but at the same time, Tom wanted the team. You know, Oliver wanted to really do kind of a 
a, an origin story, you know, which was much more character driven and much more, you know, based on, you know, the emotional aspect of who Tom was and, you know, where he was going as a character. And uh, Tom at the time really wanted to focus more on, you know, the team and the capers and all of that other stuff. So we, you know, we flew around. And I remember Tom was doing, um, at the time, he was doing promotion for uh, Jerry Maguire. So we flew to um, uh, Italy and met with him in Italy while he was doing press. And then we flew and met with him when he was in um, England doing Eyes Wide Shut with with Kubrick. And so, you know, we, we went through it with him and he was he was on board with the whole AI thing. Um, and then we went back and we just kept working on it. And I, I was pretty much working on my own you know, over at, you know, Paramount. They gave me an office. And I remember I was right next to the Star Trek casting office. <laughs> so every time I looked out my door, I would see all these Klingons outside my door, just kind of waiting to to meet with the casting people. It was, it was kind of funny. <laughs> it was really interesting. But, um, <laughs> you know, they, he had a great team. I mean, uh, Paula Wagner working with her was just, you know, terrific. So she was, you know, she had the office there. But Tom was really, he was in England the whole time doing Eyes Wide Shut with Stanley, just doing, you know, sh- scene after scene after scene after scene. It was like a movie that would never end. And um, he was, you know, very, you know, enamored with Stanley and for good reason. And I remember... Uh, Oliver got to go out to the set. I, I didn't get to go to the set, but he came back with a story. He said, you know, Stanley wouldn't even let the, the Warner Brothers executives, I think it was Warner Brothers, you know, come out. You know, they wanted to all come out to the set. So he, he brought them out, but they had to sit in a bus with smoke windows and he wouldn't let any of them out on the set. So that he'd park the, he'd park the bus out, out near the, the edge of the set, you know, like, you know, a hundred yards, 200 yards away from anything. And they had to sit inside the bus with the windows closed and nobody could get out of the bus and they'd have to just watch outside the bus. <laughs> I, I love that story. And then he, he made them go away. <laughs> oh my goodness. But did Oliver get on set? Oliver got to go on the set, but I, I didn't, but we met with, we met with Tom, you know, a couple nights, you know, at his, uh, at his, uh, you know, house outside of uh, the studio. Pinewood. Did Oliver say anything about Kubrick? Uh, no, not that I, not that I recall, but you know, we all, we all had fun. I mean, I remember the, the Jerry Maguire. I mean, I've never seen, you know, such paparazzis in all my life. I mean, you know, I, we, we would go to this restaurant, you know, with Tom Cruise and Nicole and Oliver and me and, you know, Paul Wagner and some other people, and there'd be nobody in there. And within 15 minutes, there'd be 25 30 paparazzis outside the restaurant waiting to get a glimpse so then we would we pack up and we go to a club there'd be nobody inside the club and suddenly within you know a half hour the entire club is packed with people all trying to you know get near tom i mean it was just i've never experienced anything like that before in my life and i mean that must be his life 24 7 Mm -hmm. i can see how that kind of life can get really it could be exciting for a while and then it probably gets really really annoying Mm. after a while you must have seen some of that when you were in, in Rome. Oh yeah, yeah. They were they were outside of his hotel or what they thought was his hotel all day. It was really something. I thought that they maybe were, maybe were looking for us, but it turned out <laughs> it's actually for him. Um, so when did you kind of get the impression that like that you weren't going to continue on the project? Was it when Tolkien was 
higher? Did you read that draft at all? No, I never, I never read, I never read, um, I never read Michael's draft. In fact, I mean, my draft right now is, is in storage in Los Angeles with all my other stuff. So it's hard for, and I haven't even been able to see, you know, I was traveling, so I haven't even seen the, the latest, you know, Mission Impossible, which I'm excited to see because, because of the whole AI connection. I want to see, you know, what they've done and everything. So I haven't, uh, I'm a little out of the latest version of MI2. I mean, of, 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 uh, of Mission Impossible 7, unfortunately. Mm. How did, how did it kind of end with you? I mean, were you still, you and Oliver still looking to do something like? Yeah. I mean, I, I like, I like Oliver a lot, but you know, I mean, I've been working, you know, pretty much nonstop for, for different people and also on my own projects. I worked with Michael Mann on a project that was pretty intense. And then I worked with, um, Martin Campbell, I did The Foreigner with. Yeah, we're, bo- we're both fans of that movie. That's great. Oh, thank you. Uh, I, you know, before the strike, I, you know, they hired me to do another project with him. And then there's, you know, a bunch of stuff that I've been, you know, you know, writing to direct again. I've already done two pictures, but uh, I've got a couple more that I want to, you know, do. And then a TV series that, you know, I'm putting together. So it's um, it's a pretty full plate. And I was just kind of during that time period, my agent was moving me from one studio movie into another studio movie into another studio movie. And I was really uh, I did I, after right after MI right after MI2, I did another movie called WW3.com, which, you know, also dealt with, you know, kind of surveillance issues and a lot of the stuff that touched that both um, Mission Impossible 2 as well as Enemy of the State touched on. And that um, that was greenlit. That was going to be um, made. And then uh, they were talking to two direct different directors about that. And then 9-11 happened because that was a movie all about terrorism. And after 9-11, they put it on the shelf and they said, oh, my God, we don't want to do a movie about terrorism for a while. So then uh, they were looking for something to do for Die Hard. They hired a bunch of, die, you know, the free Die Hard. They had a bunch of writers one after another. And all their scripts, you know, weren't working for them. And then somebody remembered they had my script called WW3.com on a shelf and they blew the dust off of that. And they said, all right, well, let's turn this into the Die Hard. I wasn't available to, to do it. So they hired another writer to, to come in and basically recraft my script into uh, what became known as Live Free Die Hard. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, during this period too, but the enemy of the state got made in ninety. You know, it beat Mission Impossible two to production. How did how did Tony get involved? How did Oliver fall off? What was what happened there? What happened was Oliver, uh, you know, called Bruckheimer. Oliver called the head of Disney, and he was you know gung ho to do the movie. You know, and had Oliver done it, I'm sure it would have had a, much more of like a gravitas. You know the 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 issues, the the privacy issues and all that would have been much more weighty and would have probably hit a lot harder. Um, but Jerry, um, at the time, you know, he had a good relationship with Tony and Tony was more of kind of uh, an entity that, you know, he could work with and, you know, ultimately kind of, you know, run a little more than Oliver. If it was Oliver directing it, you know, I don't think Jerry would have had the control 
that he was able to have, you know, with, with, with Tony, because Tony and him already had a relationship. They'd done, you know, days of thunder and top gun together. So they had a really strong, you know, working relationship. So literally, I mean, Jerry was able to call, you know, Tony in right away. And he also had a very strong relationship with Will Smith from bad boys. So he could make that call. I mean, you know, Bruckheimer is a very strong producer in that he can literally pick up the phone in a weekend, you know, have his movie, have his directors and his, you know, actors, you know, cast, <laughs> you know, and that's really what makes him such a, you know, strong and amazing producer is that, that power that he has. So that, that once he brought in Tony and um, Will, it went relatively quickly. back with more from david marconi after the break rise and shine football fans start your day the right way with morning footy a podcast that covers every aspect of the global game headlines match previews analysis interviews culture fashion and plenty of banter Join as we track the thrills and spills of Europe's biggest title races, the business end of the Champions League season, a summer packed with international competitions, MLS, NWSL, and much more. Subscribe to Morning Footy. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, wherever you get your podcasts. Can we talk about what, what was in your Mission Impossible 2 draft? Like, the, I know the opening of this the, the draft that we read was in, like, a uh, South American rainforest, I think, and there was a whole... Uh, airplane sequence that was turned out to be a mousetrap. Was that something that was in your draft or is that something no. that was added later? No, that was all added. That was added. Because I know that you mentioned the um, the the prison breakout in China. That's in there. Yeah, that was that was all in mine. And, and you know, I, I had met with a magician. So the whole thing with the Mylar screen and all that stuff and, you know, some of these magic right. tricks. I mean, I, I got that right from, you know, magicians and stuff. Right, yeah, the Mylar screen. I remember we read about that because that's something that ends up in Ghost Protocol. I don't yeah. know if you've seen the Brad Bird movie, but they have a screen that kind of they use to trick people down a hallway. And I remember that, yeah, we when we read uh, the in the Tolkien draft, it's in there as well, that Mylar screen in the prison breakout. Yes, yeah, so so they just kind of I they just kind of went and they took the the idea of AI. You know, I think Tolkien took the and they they he probably had to you know, reintroduce Lucather and, you know, some of the team characters and make it much more of a team plot to satisfy, you know, Tom and Cruz Wagner right. and also keep Oliver, you know, somewhat engaged. Right. So there was no Luther in your draft then? No, no. In my, you know, he's on a sailboat, but he's on his way to Greece to search for his father. That's Ethan's doing that. Yes, yes. And so is the, I assume then there's also no Max from the first movie, Vanessa Redgrave's character? No. No Max. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Is there still like the whole um, 
you know, there was sort of like a, a, a Brazil, like um, the movie Brazil uh, chair in a room that you'd get strapped into to, to be, you know, for the AI. Was that still, was that something that was part of your draft or no? Possibly. Okay. I mean, it's, I, I mean, <laughs> Been a while. If you need a couple of guys to get into your storage unit, yeah, yeah, uh, to read that draft, let us know. I've got we, a crowbar. We'll, we'll go do it. If, you, if you lost yeah. the key, where we can get yeah, in? Yeah, it's yeah, it's like deep storage, <laughs> but we need it. We need to get in there, and then we can have we some do. real fun. We do. Yes, yes that would be awesome. <laughs> we could do a table read on the show. That would be the best. I wish I could give you more specifics, but I mean, I've got a you know, it's I'm kind of stuck in this uh, between a rock and a hard place because. I have enough storage, you know, stuff there to fill up, you know, a house and a half of furniture and antiques and right. all kinds of stuff. And it's, you know, it's, you know, storage is the worst. I don't know if you guys have ever had storage, but, you know, once the stuff goes in there, it goes into, it goes into a dark, dark hole. Well, we're, we're patient. We, we've been doing this for a long time. You know, we, we got we tracked down the Robert Town draft of the first movie. We can we can wait. We'll get there. We'll, we'll help you. All right. All right. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm up for that. When I when I go back, but it's like I can't get my storage out until I get a you know a sizable house over here, and then I have to put it all on a container ship and ship it over here. It's just like, I mean, every time I think about it, it's just it's just so daunting that I don't I don't know how to how to deal with it all. Um, but it's it's there in storage, and they're they're I can't even get into the storage because they're like sealed containers, right? You know what I'm saying? So it's just. Uh, <laughs> well, so, to tell me what you remember about Ethan's journey to find his father. So in the first movie, obviously, there's so you guys must have run with this uh, thread because there's no mention of his dad in the first movie. There's only his mom and his uncle. So is that where that idea came from? In well, yeah, yeah. The idea, the idea of him searching for his family and putting that stuff back together. I mean, Tolkien probably just did his version of it, but you know, the idea of him searching for his roots was something that you know came out of ours, you know, with with Oliver. I I don't think he's looking for his dad in the Tolkien draft, if I if I recall correctly. It's been a, been a little while since we read it, but yeah, I think they. I don't think that's part of it. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, but it's um, he, and I remember the father was you know, involved in, you know, some of the, the, the things that happened in Greece in World War II. So there was like a lot of kind of, um, when I was, I was very kind of influenced by a book called The Magus, John Fowles, which are these kind of hazy dreams of World War II and some of the things that happened in Greece. And I kind of like referenced that in, in some of these uh, scenes that I wrote. And I really, I was really, uh, it was really a very good draft until about, you know, the third act when I had to start dealing with the idea of outer space and, you know, getting Tom up there and, you know, all the madcap stuff that could be happening in outer space. That was just, you know, we would go to, you know, again, we'd go to these, you know, military labs and Oliver would say, well, you know, is this, is this possible? Is this feasible? And they'd say, well, maybe your grandchildren's grandchildren, but you know, now it's, it's, it's not, it's not there. So having to try to shoehorn in this, you know, technology and these these crazy ideas that that he had was 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 daunting for me, to say the least. What what was the reason for him to go to outer space in the script? 
Well, that's where he want ultimately the, this uh, AI was was based. Oh, okay. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's I don't that's not in the Tolkien either. Instead of it being in a submarine, which is I guess the the current MI seven. Yeah, in Dead Reckoning Part One, it's in a submarine. Uh, well, is it? Yes, yeah, sort of. It's sort of kind of in the ether now at this point, it seems like, because it's... But that's where that's where the kill switch is or something. Yes, yeah, the source code, it sounds like the source code or kill switch or something like that is is in is buried in a submarine. Um, yeah, the entity itself, I don't know if it's anywhere. It's kind it's of... It's everywhere. It's everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but you, like, you like the 7. I mean, it got very good reviews. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, we loved it. Yeah, I mean, it's great. It's... Uh, it's yeah, it's very different from the Tolkien draft, and I, I, I yeah, I don't, I, we have obviously we haven't we haven't seen yours, but it seems very different from that as well. Um, I'm just curious about uh, like was there a there was a an air it was a big airport sequence in the Tolkien draft as well. Was that something that was in yours as well? A big airport set piece where the AI is messing with the air traffic control stuff and scrambling things like that. Was that in yours? Maybe. Maybe. I mean, I, I know I used that, that scene in WW3.com. I don't know if I, if I borrowed that from my MI2 script. I could have. Uh, in my script, WW3.com, I had these uh, commercial jet flying in, and suddenly the, the plane is basically just taken over. And they said, you know, and, the, and a voice starts broadcasting, inside the cockpit saying, you know, there's nothing you guys can do. This recording is for the black box and the people that find it, you know, once, you know, they recover the, you know, the debris and it, it lays out a series of demands and everything else that it wants and, and what's going to happen. So that might've been in the original draft. I don't, again, I apologize, but I can't, I looked for the draft before I, got on the phone with you guys to try and, you know, refresh my, my memory. I even called some of the old executives, but, uh, because of the time difference, uh, we've been trading calls. (laughs) Well, you'll have to let us know if you, uh, find any more uh, information for us about that. Yeah. (laughs) You're back. And we're back from that amazing interview with David Marconi. Charles, wrap us up. Tell us what you thought. Give us all the details. <laughs> I just, you know, always love hearing about Tony Scott's Enemy of the State. Great to hear the story of how that came together. Um, in light of the AI villain in Dead Reckoning Part 1, it's fascinating to dig into this abandoned version of Mission Impossible 2. Uh, it's, you know, we're fascinated, of course. And uh, also, the craziest thing is that part of this movie took place in space. He just kind of casually mentioned that at one point, and that was not in the draft that we had seen before. So it was kind of like, wait, 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 wait. What? Uh, what? The finale was in space? So, uh, you know, I know the people have joked about that before, about Tom Cruise going to space for for Mission Impossible. You know, there is that one project that, that he's trying to get going, I think, where he does actually go to space, but that's not Mission Impossible. But it's what do you think about Mission Impossible in space, Drew? I would be very into it. I would like to see Ethan making contact 
perhaps <laughs> kind of bridging if anyone should yeah it really obviously should be ethan who makes content <laughs> i think so i mean i think i think he's a great ambassador for the, for the humanity you know yeah. he know he's seen the human element he's he's loved he's lost you know right. i feel like that's yes. something that he can convey so I yes, I would trust him to be the one to make contact. Yeah, yeah for sure. You know, and it's I don't know, it just would have been a different movie though, you know, the the totally different movie. I mean, no Luther, no team, just Ethan on a quest to find his father. It just sounds very different. And it kind of it sounds like it would have been a really cool movie, but maybe not a Mission Impossible movie. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like we kind of got the best of both worlds because we did get Enemy of the State with Tony Scott, and that's such a wonderful movie and a great Christmas movie. Yes. I, I always remind people. So, yeah, we kind of we got that. We got kind of the, the technological thriller that he was kind of going for with Mission Impossible, but in Enemy of the State. So I feel like we're. Yeah, we got it all. We're 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 sitting pretty. Yeah. Uh, and then just last night, my, my, my favorite story from this whole thing was just hearing when he described Stanley Kubrick making the Warner Brothers studio executives sit inside a bus with smoked windows because he wouldn't allow them on set of Eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's my favorite. Amazing. One of my favorite stories I think maybe we've heard on this show ever. And we've heard some good ones. Um, so, yeah, next week, come back because we hear more about how... David and, and Oliver Stone developed this story for Mission Impossible 2 that never came to be. We hear about a project he was doing with Michael Mann that wasn't Black Hat, but was, of course, uh, dealt with cyber uh, terrorism type stuff. And uh, we cover the Martin Campbell directed Jackie Chan movie, The Foreigner, which David wrote. So, of course, I have to ask him all about Jackie Chan, as is my uh, duty uh, on this show, of course. Sure, custom. So, anyway... Uh, yeah, that's, I think that's it for this week. Uh, anything else we need to, to tell our listeners, Drew, I leave it to you. Well, you know, I want to first let everybody know that Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning is on all sorts of home video platforms, whether you want to get it digitally, uh, you can buy it that way. You can also buy it on Blu-ray, DVD, and 4K HD. And, you know, it's almost worth getting a new 4K player just to see the movie that way. It looks absolutely spectacular at home. And you know what? You can rewind it. You can try to listen for our dogs if you can hear them in the train finale. <laughs> Let us know uh, if you can do some isolation on there. But also just that every Tuesday there's a new episode of Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and be sure to follow us, as we said before, on social media at Light the Fuse Pod, on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and now TikTok. Oh, and, and just one last thing before we go. Of course, you can always stream the uh, Mission Impossible series, the first six movies on uh, Paramount Plus. So do that because those movies are awesome. Um, so yeah, keep in touch with us. Let us know what you think. Remember to like, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you're listening to this podcast. And we'll be back next week uh, with this, yeah, second part of David Marconi. I think you're going to really get a kick out of it. Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast, is produced by Charles Hood. That's me and Drew Taylor. Our supervising producer is Abby Smith. This episode was edited by Luke Burson with music by Kevin Blumenfeld. Original Mission Impossible themes by Lalo Schifrin. This podcast is a production of Paramount Pictures. All rights are reserved. This message will self-destruct in five seconds.